Section 5 of Psychotherapy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Thomas Coos. Psychotherapy by Hugo Münsterberg. Chapter 5, Part 1, Suggestion and Hypnotism. Psychotherapy has now become for us the effort to repair the disturbed equilibrium of human functions by influencing the mental life. It is acknowledged on all sides that the most powerful of these influences is that of suggestion. This is an influence which is most easily misunderstood and which has most often become the starting point for misleading theories. Before we enter into the study of the practical effects of suggestion and the psychotherapeutic results, we must examine this tool in the hand of the psychotherapist from a purely psychological viewpoint. The patient may perhaps sometimes profit from suggestion the more, the less he understands about its nature, but the physician will always secure the better results, the more clearly he apprehends the working of this subtle tool. Of course, that does not mean that any psychology is able to explain the process of suggestion to a point where all difficulties are removed, but at least the mysteries can be removed and the effects can be linked with other well-known processes. Let us be clear from the start that suggestion is certainly nothing abnormal and exceptional nothing which leads us away from our ordinary life, nothing which brings us nearer to the great riddles of the universe. There is no human life into which suggestion does not enter in a hundred forms. Family life and education, law and business, public life and politics, art and religion, are carried by suggestion. A suggestion is, we might say at first, an idea which has a power in our mind to suppress the opposite idea. A suggestion is an idea which in itself is not different from other ideas, but the way in which it takes possession of the mind reduces the chances of any opposite ideas. It inhibits them. It is, indeed, the best result of any successful education, that the teachings have taken hold of the mind of the young in such a way that all the opposite tendencies and impulses and wishes do not come to development. The well-educated person does not need to participate in a struggle between good and bad motives, for that which has been impressed upon his mind does not allow the other side to come up at all. Our life would be crowded with inner conflicts if education had not secured for us, from the start, preponderance for the suggestions of our educators. The love of family and friends, of our country and our party, are in the same way such suggestions. We may hear arguments for the other side, arguments which easily convince the man of the other party, but they do not appeal to us. They are emasculated before they enter our minds. They have no chance to overcome the resistance because suggestions stand in their way. No argument will overwhelm the suggestion which religion has settled in our inner life, and from this strongest suggestion, which can stand against any temptation of life, small psychological steps lead down to the little bits of suggestion with which our daily chance life is overflooded. 
Every advertisement in the newspaper, every display in the shop window, every warm intonation in the voice of our neighbor has its suggestive power. That is, it brings its content in such a way to our minds that the desire to do the opposite is weakened. We do buy the object that we do not need. And we do follow the advice which we ought to have reconsidered. And what would remain of art if it had not this power of suggestion by which it comes to us and wins the victory over every opposing idea? We believe the painter and we believe the novelist if their technique is good. We do not remember that the inventions of their genius are contrary to our life experience. We feel sympathy with the hero and do not care in the least that he has no real life. The suggestion of art has inhibited in us every contrary idea. Such daily experience shows us that suggestive power may belong to different men in different degree. There are lawyers whose arguments and whose presentation open our mind, it seems, to any suggestion, while others leave us indifferent. We understand their idea, we follow their thoughts, and yet we remain accessible to opposite influences. There are teachers whose authority gives to every word such an impressiveness and dignity that every opposite thought disappears, while others throw out words which are forgotten. On the other hand, the readiness to accept suggestions is evidently also quite different with different individuals. From the most credulous to the stubborn, we have every degree of suggestibility. The one impressed by the suggestive power of any idea which is brought to his mind, the other always inclined to distrust and to look over to the opposite argument. Such a stubborn mind is indeed not only without inclination for suggestions, but it may develop even a negative suggestibility. Whatever it receives awakens an instinctive impulse towards the opposite. Moreover, we are all in different degrees, suggestible at different times and under various conditions. Emotions reinforce our readiness to accept suggestions. Hope and fear, love and jealousy, give to the impression and the idea a power to overwhelm the opposite idea, which otherwise might have influenced our deliberation. Fatigue and intoxicants increase suggestibility very strongly. To look out on a wider perspective, we may add at once that an artificial increase of suggestibility is all which constitutes the state of hypnotism. At first, however, we want to understand the ordinary process of suggestion in that normal form in which it enters into every hour of our life and into every relation of our social intercourse. But if we begin to examine the structure of the process, we can no longer be satisfied with the vague reference to ideas and their opposites. What does it all mean, after all, if we speak of opposite ideas? Can we not entertain any ideas peacefully together in our consciousness? From a logical standpoint, ideas may contradict each other, but that refers to their meaning. As mere bits of psychological experience, I may have any ideas together in my consciousness. I can think summer and winter, or day and night, or right and left, or black and white, or love and hate, in one embracing thought. As mere mental stuff, the one idea does not interfere with the other. On the other hand, this is evident. I cannot will to turn to the right and to turn to the left at the same time.
there may be a wrangling between those two impulses but as soon as my will stands for the one the other is really excluded any action which i am starting to do thus crowds out the impulse to the opposite action in the sphere of psychological facts we have here indeed the only relation between two happenings which necessarily involves an opposition we could never understand why one brain cell might not work together with any other brain cell but we do understand that nature must provide for an apparatus by which the impulse to one action makes the impulse to the opposite action ineffective there is no action which has not its definite opposite the carrying out of any impulse involves the suppression of the contrary impulse and the impulse not to do an action involves the suppression of the impulse to do it when we spoke of the relations of mind and brain we mentioned that such a correlation of mental centers indeed exists physiological experiments have demonstrated that the activity of those centers which stimulate a certain action reduce the excitability of those brain parts which awaken the antagonistic action as far as the world of actions is concerned the mechanism of the process of suggestion thus seems not inaccessible to a physiological understanding various ideas of movements to be carried out are struggling for control in the cortex of the brain that is the normal status which precedes any decision the channels of motor discharge are open for both possibilities we may turn to the right or to the left then the play of associations begins a larger and larger circle of ideas surrounds the idea of the one and of the other goal those ideas awaken emotions on the one side may call our duty and on the other side our pleasure larger and larger parts of the central content of our consciousness of our own personality become involved our principles and maxims our memories our hopes and fears enter into the battle until deeper strata of the idea of ourselves enter into a firm association with the one side reinforcing perhaps the idea of the goal at the right this opens wide the channels of discharge for the movement to the right and inhibits thereby the excitability of the center which leads to the opposite action the channel of discharge to the movement towards the left becomes closed the idea of that movement fades away and becomes inhibited we are moving toward the right the outcome was the product of our total personality but this result would have been different if from the start the channels of discharge had not been equally open for both possible movements and if thus the relative resistance to the impulse had not been equal on both sides if for instance we had gone from the given point frequently to the left as a result of the habit and training the impulse to the left would have found less nervous resistance the channels would have become widened by the repetition and the opposite channels would have been somewhat closed by the lack of use or if instead of such previous habit we would see at the decisive moment others turning to the left the impression would have become the starting point 
for a reaction of mere instinctive imitation while we might not have followed that imitative impulse at once yet the channels would have been widened the discharge in the direction would have been prepared by it the resistance would have been lowered and the chances for the opposite movement would have been decreased those people who moved to the left gave us by their action the same kind of an impulse which they would have furnished if they had begged us with words or if they had ordered us to follow them with authoritative firmness in each of these cases the influence would have amounted to a suggestion whether we watched the movements of other people or whether their words made an impression on us in either case the way became prepared for a certain line of action and therefore the way for the opposite action became blocked the final outcome was thus no longer an entirely free play of motor ideas but there was a little inequality in play the one had from the start a better chance the other was from the start laboring under difficulties the suggestion of actions is thus nothing but making use of the antagonistic character in the nervous paths which start the motor centers that all such phrases as the opening and the closing the widening and the blocking of channels of discharge are only metaphors hardly needs special emphasis instead of such comparisons we ought rather to think of chemical processes which offer various degrees of resistance to the propagation of the nervous excitement we see from here the direction in which many psychotherapeutic efforts must lie efforts which are entirely within the limits of the daily normal experience and belong to the medical practice of every physician yes to the healthful influence of every man in practical life the intemperate man may suffer from this inability to resist his desire for whiskey the idea of his visit to the saloon finds the channels of discharge open we argue with him we tempt him by attractions which lead to other ways we suggest to him that he spend those evening hours perhaps with friends or with books for which we awaken his interest we do it as impressively as we can we appeal to his friendly feeling for us and if again the hour comes in which the desire for the artificial stimulation sets in with a motor impulse towards the bottle the channels for discharge have now been blocked the idea of the opposite action arises it associates itself with the emotions which we stirred up in his mind if it associates itself with the respect for the adviser and thus new clusters of thought reinforce that idea of action which we suggested and this opposite line of action now finds a minimum resistance because our appeal has opened beforehand the gate the desire for the book works itself out into action while the desire for the cup finds increased resistance just this is the kind of suggestion with which we correct faulty action everywhere in our social circle and yet small steps lead on from here to the case where perhaps the desire for alcohol has reached that pathological intensity in which the equilibrium is entirely disturbed and cannot be repaired without suggestions of a much more powerful character given in a state of artificially increased suggestibility in hypnotism 
the principle of opening certain channels of discharge for the purpose of closing the opposite channels remains in the extreme case the same as the more ordinary cases the impulse to drink is a positive one but the principle is not different where the impulse is negative a friend who comes from the quiet contrary may feel unable to pass the busy square of the city the fear of an accident holds back his steps he cannot give the impulse to walk through the crowded rush of vehicles now either by words of advice by persuasion or by showing the way we may apply our suggestion we open the channels of discharge for the necessary movements and thus decrease the excitability of those centers in which nervous fear was playing and again small steps lead from here to the case of the psychasthenic sufferer whose phobic does not allow him to cross any square and where reinforced suggestion has to break open the ways for the walking movement when the square is reached thus we are not far from a causal understanding of suggestive influences wherever actions are concerned where movements are to be reinforced or to be suppressed and where antagonism of motor paths is involved but that does not seem to lead us nearer to the much larger group of states in which the whole suggestive process concerns apparently the interplay of ideas alone where not actions but impressions are controlled by suggestion where not impulses but thoughts are strengthened or inhibited here lies the real psychophysical problem which has been by far too much neglected in scientific psychology and has almost been hidden and made to disappear in the wonderful accounts of the hypnotists but all those mysterious stories as to the achievements of suggestion cannot help so long as we do not understand the working of the process and we shall have the better chance to understand it the more we keep away from the uncanny and mysterious results which refer to the most complex conditions and rather seek to analyze the state in its simplest forms and compare it with other simple mental processes the psychology of suggestion has suffered too much by the fascination which its most complex forms exert on a trivial curiosity yet the problem of suggestion in the field of ideas stands after all not isolated instead of connecting it with the weird reports of mystic influence from man to man let us rather link it with the simple experience of attention there is no pulse beat of our life in which attention does not play its little role but does not attention share with suggestion the characteristic feature that some contents of the consciousness are reinforced and others are suppressed this negative thus suppressing character of attention is not a chance by-product it is most essential there is no attention without it if i am studying i do not hear the conversation around me and if i listen to the conversation my studies in hand become inhibited if i enjoy the play on the stage and give it to my full attention my memories of the day's work are suppressed if i think of the happenings of the day i am not attentive to the play and hardly notice what is going on the inhibited impression may often disappear entirely while i am reading i am not at all aware of the 
tactual and muscular sensations in my legs, and if I am completely absorbed by my book, I may not even notice that the bell rings. In short, we have here in the most characteristic relation, just as in suggestion, the fact that one mental state becomes vivid and that others are losing ground, become less vivid, are inhibited, and perhaps disappear entirely. Of course, to point the similarity between suggestion and attention is not a real explanation. It may be answered that attention simply offers the same difficulties once more. How can we explain in the attention process the fact that one idea, the one attended to, becomes vivid and that others evaporate? The difficulty evidently cannot be removed by simply saying that only one sensorial process can be developed in the brain at one time. The popular descriptions of attention easily make it appear as if such were the solution of the problem. If one sensorial brain part is intensely engaged, the remainder of the brain is condemned to a kind of inactivity. Yet such a dogma is hardly better than the old-fashioned one that the soul can only have one idea at a time. We know too well now that the psychological system is an extremely complex equilibrium of millions of elements. Thus, every change must be explained with reference to this complex manifold. Above all, the facts simply contradict such an over-simple explanation inasmuch as it is not at all true that only one content of consciousness can become vivid. Our attention does not focus upon one point at all, but may illuminate a large field and thus give vividness to various complex groups. If I am thinking about a scientific problem, an abundance of reminiscences of previous reading and imaginative ideas of possible solutions, associative thoughts and conclusions are with equal vividness before my mind, and the forthcoming thought may be influenced by this total combination. I have no right whatever to say that the idea of a certain solution excludes there in my mind the consideration of the books which i have read and of the discussions which i have heard emotions may be superadded in short a world of mental states may be held together by one act of attention and new and ever new thoughts are shooting in and all still find place there in the field attended to while on the other hand my slight headache is inhibited and an appointment is forgotten at a gay banquet, my attention may be given to the whole hall, with all its color effects and its flowers, and to all that the table offers, and to the music from the orchestra, and to the jokes of my neighbors. It is not true that any one of those parts suppresses the vividness of the others. They seem rather to maintain and to help one another, and yet in the same moment my neighbor may bring my news, which absorbs my mind entirely, and leaves no room for the flowers and the music and the meal. How far can psychology do justice to these characteristics of attention? There seems to be but one way out. The attended to idea does not exclude every other idea, but it does exclude the opposite idea, and opposite each other is here again the pair of ideas which lead to opposite actions, to opposite psychophysical attitudes. We must remember here the psychomotor characteristic of our brain processes which we so fully discussed. We recognized the fundamental truth 
that there is no sensorial state which is not at the same time the starting point for motor reaction. We recognize that the brain is by its whole psychological development a great switchboard which transfers incoming currents into outgoing ones and that its biological meaning lies in the fact that it is the centerpiece of an arc which leads from the sense organs to the muscles. We cannot conceive of those relations as complex enough. We know, of course, that millions of nerve fibers lead from the periphery to the highest psychophysical apparatus in the cortex of the brain, and that millions of fibers bring about the interrelation between these central stations. But we must never forget that millions of fibers also represent the outgoing paths, and that they too lead down to lower central motor instruments, which are again in numberless correlations. An impression is thus a starting point for attitudes and reactions, and it is an empty abstraction to consider it otherwise. An idea is never psychophysically considered. The end of the process, it is always a beginning. No external action may follow, but the mental impulse to such is nevertheless starting in the highest center. If we look at the landscape, every single spot of color reaching a nerve fiber in our eye and finally a sensory cell in our brain, is there the starting point for an impulse to make an eye movement in the direction of the seen point. The eye may remain entirely quiet as the impulse to move down may be equally strong. But those thousands of impulses work in the motor paths and only their equilibrium results in the suppression of the outer movement. With such motor scheme, we begin to understand the selective process in attention. An impression may be accompanied by other stimuli and associations, by thoughts and ideas, and thousands of sensory excitements may thus arise in the cortex. But only those have a chance for full vividness of development which cooperate in the motor action already started. Those impressions which would lead to the opposite actions have no chance because their motor paths are blocked and their own full development is dependent upon their possibility of expression. To close the path means to inhibit the idea which demands such action. We can attend to a hundred thoughts altogether, if they all lead to the same attitude indeed. We can look at the opera, can see every singer and every singer's gown, can listen to every word, can have the whole plot in mind, can hear the thousands of tones which come from the orchestra, and yet combine all that in one act of attention, because it all belongs to the same setting of our reactive apparatus. Whatever the one wants is wanted by the others, but... If at the same time our neighbor speaks to us, we do not notice it. His words work as a stimulus which demands an entirely different motor setting as an answer. Therefore, the words remain unvivid and unnoticed. To attend means therefore to bring about a motor setting by which the object of attention finds open channels for discharge in action. Which particular action is needed in the state of attention cannot be doubtful. Attention demands those motor responses and those inner steps by which the object of attention shows itself more fully, 
and more clearly. When we give attention to the picture, we want to see more details. When we give attention to the problem, we want to recognize more of the factors involved. When we give attention to the banquet, we want to grasp more of the pleasurable features. The aim of attention involves that, as part of such reactions, the sense organs become adjusted. We fixate the eyeball, we listen, and in consequence the object itself becomes clearer. And through the easy passage into the motor channels, the whole impression becomes vivid. At the same time, all those associations must be reinforced and become vivid to which lead to the same action. On the other hand, the opening of the one passageway closes the path to the opposite action and inhibits the impressions which would interfere with our interest. Every act of attention becomes, therefore, a complex distribution in the reinforcement and inhibition of mental states. Now, let us come back to suggestion. It shares, we said, with attention, the power to reinforce and to inhibit. But if we examine what is involved in the suggestion of an idea, we find surely more than a mere turning of the attention towards one idea and turning the attention away from another idea. That which characterizes and constitutes suggestion is a belief in the idea. An acceptance of the idea is real, and the dismissal of the opposite idea as unreal. Yes, we may say directly that it is meaningless to speak of suggesting an idea. We suggest either an action or, if no action is concerned, we suggest belief in an idea. If I suggest to the fearful man at twilight that the willow tree trunk by the wayside is a man with a gun, I do not turn his attention to an abstract idea of a robber, nor do I simply awaken the visual impression of one. But I do make him believe that such an idea is there realized, that he really sees the person. If I suggest to him that he hears distant bells ringing, or that he feels a slight headache, he may not be suggestible enough to accept it. But if he accepts it, he is not simply attending to the idea which I propose, but he is convinced of its real existence. The same holds true with the negative. If I suggest to him that the slight headache of which he complained has disappeared, or that the smell which he noticed has stopped, I do not simply invite him to think of the absence of such sensations. It becomes for him a suggestion only if he becomes convinced that these disturbances have now become unreal. The same holds true for all those suggestions of ideas which belong to our practical life. The suggestions which art imprints on our minds, or which politics and religion impart. As long as we are under the suggestion of the novelist, we really believe in the existence of the heroine. We really believe in the validity of the political party principle. It is not an argument to which we simply give our attention. It becomes a suggestion only when the belief in its objective existence controls our minds. We may say, in general, that suggestions which are not suggestions of actions are without exception suggestions of belief. Actions and beliefs are the only possible material of any suggestion. Actions and beliefs are the only possible material of any suggestion. 
Yet what else is a belief than a perception for action? I may think of an object without preparing myself for any particular line of behavior. Here in the room, I may think of rain or sunshine on the street as a mere idea, but to know that it now really rains or shines means something entirely different. It means a completely new setting in my present attitude, a setting by which I am prepared to act along the one or the other line, to take an umbrella or to take a straw hat where I am to leave the house. I may think of the door in this room as locked or unlocked without transcending the mere sphere of imagination. But to believe that it is the one or the other means a new setting in my motor adjustments. If it is locked, I know that I cannot leave the room without a key. Every belief means the preparation for a definite line of action, and a new motor adjustment in the whole system of motor paths, an adjustment by which my actions in future will be switched off at once into particular paths. And there is theoretically no difference whether my belief refers to the proposition that the door is locked or that a God exists in heaven. But if every belief is such a new motor setting, then we are evidently brought about to the mechanism which was essential for every suggestion of action on the one side, and for every process of attention on the other side, namely, the mechanism of antagonistic movements. To prepare ourselves for one line of action means to close beforehand the channels of discharge for the opposite. The suggestible mind sees the man with the gun on the wayside because he is preparing himself in his expectation for the appropriate action. He is ready for the fight or ready to run away, and every line of the tree trunk is apperceived with reference to this motor setting. The smell, on the other hand, has disappeared under the influence of the suggestion because a new motor adjustment has set in in which he is prepared to act as if there were no smell the difference between suggestion and attention lies thus only in this the motor response and attention aims towards a fuller clearness of the idea for instance by fixating listening observing searching while the motor response in suggestion aims towards the practical action in which the object of the idea is accepted as real in attention we change the object in making it clearer in suggestion we change ourselves in adapting ourselves to the new situation in which we believe. If you consider attention as a psychophysical process open to physiological explanation, you have surely no reason to seek anything mysterious in the process of suggestion, and no new principle is involved. If we come from the effect of the smallest suggestive hint to the complex and powerful suggestions which overwhelm the whole personality. End of section 5, part 1. Recording by John Thomas Coos. www.validateyourlife.com